feel that and enjoy that. So please uh, join me in welcoming Tim Budge to be our speaker this weekend. Okay. Thanks, man. Can you help me unwrap that? Yeah. <laughs> Give us a moment. going to hold this. I'm not going to use that one. It's my first time working with a stand. Thank you. Hey guys. It's good to see you all. Uh, welcome to Greystone. Um, I am, you know, you're, you have to say this at the very beginning. I'm really excited. I'm really excited to be here, but I'll tell you the reason I am excited to be here is that I love Love, love, Sammy Rhodes. No, I love, 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 RUF. Um, it was, I was sitting here, I was sitting in the back singing along and singing songs that I've sung forever, and I was thinking about 23 years ago when I walked into an RUF large group for the first time, and RUF was never the same. <laughs> I walked into... No, I walked in and I was, I did not want to go at all. There was nothing about it that I really wanted to go to. Somebody had told me you need to check this out. Um, I hated youth group as a child. I didn't go. I told my parents I didn't want to go because I thought it was cheesy. And we did stupid things. And so I I thought, I'm going to walk into this meeting and it's going to be corny and they're going to make me do things I don't want to do. But the reason I walked in is because I was lonely. And I was probably, to be honest, a little bit depressed. And I really didn't have a whole lot of other friends. And I walked into that large group for the first time, and I'll be honest, and this is not me being dramatic, I was, I've never been the same since. Um, because what happened there was not about RUF. What happened there is that Jesus, he met me there. Um, Jesus met me there and in a way that I had never, I'd heard about Jesus my whole life. I had um, t- talked about him. I'd heard others talk about him, but there was something that happened there um, is the reason that I'm still amazed that I'm a pastor. It's the funniest thing if you really knew me. Um, and that I'm standing here talking to you about it. It's because Jesus works in very special ways, I think, through RUF. And so I'm really glad to be here. Um, I met my wife through RUF. Some of you might meet your spouse this weekend. Who knows? It could happen. It could happen. Never crossed your mind, I'm sure, but it could happen. Um, I was at, Sammy mentioned I was at Furman for, for seven years. Furman's only about 30 minutes down the road from here. I just lost you all, right? Back up here, okay? This is about me, okay? Um, I was at Furman RUF for seven years, which is only about 30 minutes down the road. So this was our fall conference for seven years, was here at Greystone. Um, But I was also a campus pastor at this camp for seven years in the summer. And so my my youngest daughter, who's in the back, when she was two months old was the first time she was here. So um, there's so many memories in this place. I know you don't care about that, but I'm going to talk about it, okay? Because this is my time. Memories that are here, and I, I think that some of you uh, I know that have been to this camp before and been to this fall conference 
Um, you couldn't wait to come back because there's something special about this place. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do and where we're going to go this weekend. And I was trying to think of how to do this because somebody asked me a minute ago, what are you talking about? Um, what are you preaching on this weekend? And I was thinking, you know, when you do these kind of conferences, you should have a really succinct answer to that. And I, I kind of didn't. But in, it's okay. Hang with me. Let me, let me start this way. Let me, add, let, me, let me throw out four words to you. And I'm going to throw these words out to you, and I want, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about if you have encountered these things, or if you have felt these things, or if you have encountered them in somebody else, in somebody else's life, in the last 24 hours, the last 48 hours, the last week, the last month, I imagine it'll be sooner rather than later. And the four things are this. Grief. Fear, doubt, failure. Grief, think about it. Fear, doubt, and failure. Have you, have you experienced any of those things in the recent past? Have you sat with somebody else and experienced somebody else weeping in the last week. I bet if I were to ask for a show of hands, um, there would be a lot of them in this room. Have you, have you experienced in the last week failure that you didn't know what to do with? Now, let me ask you this question. What do you think God thinks about those things? Does he think about those things? When you experience grief, and fear, and doubt, and failure, where is God? Is he close by? And I know you know the answer, and you know the Sunday school answer, but I want you to think about it, and I want to think about what you feel in those moments. Where is God in those moments? And this is the reason I'm asking you this question, because what we're going to look at this weekend is we're going to look at the last two chapters of John's gospel. John was one who described himself, if he were introducing himself to you tonight, He would say this. He would say, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. And when we hear that, we kind of think, that sounds kind of prideful, right? It's like, I'm the one he loved, okay? That's not how he meant it. What John meant was this. I cannot believe I am loved by Jesus. He loves me. I'm the disciple that he loved. And John, and we're going to see this, John wants you more than anything He is so in love with Jesus because he has encountered Jesus in his own grief, in his own fear, in his own doubt, and in his own failure. And he loves Jesus so much that what he wants is for you to see him. He's ecstatic about it. He wants you to see Jesus. And what I want for you this weekend is to see where does Jesus go when he comes out of the tomb? That's all we're going to look at. We're just going to look at Jesus Because when you look at Jesus, this is what you see. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us, that you see the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. If you wonder, what is God like? What does he act like? Who is he close to? How does he react to my grief or how does he react to my failure? Look at Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory and he is the exact imprint of his nature. And so... 
That's all we're going to do this weekend. We're going to start in John chapter 20. I don't know if that's going to be up here. No? I'm going to read it to you. John chapter 20, this is right after Jesus comes out of the grave. And this is what happens. We're going to go 20 through um, 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in the place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Amen. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that what we just read um, is true, that tonight you give it to us because you want us to know you. You want us to know what you were like, that this is how you reveal yourself to us. So I pray that you would help us even at this late hour to pay attention, to listen and to look and to bring our own tears to Jesus tonight. Father, that we might meet him, that he might meet us exactly where we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't, many of you probably don't know the name Kate Bowler. Um, if you were at, Duke isn't here this weekend, are they? Good, because I hate Duke. Um, she's a, yeah, let's pause for that. Is there any way we could turn this monitor off? I feel like I'm screaming at myself. Is that possible? Thank you.
No? Oh, I thought you were getting. I thought you were getting up to do that. Yeah. Um, Would it hurt to unplug it? We're gonna find out. Oh, that. Yeah, that's better. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Um, Kate Bowler. She's a she's a professor of religious history at Duke University, and um, a few years ago, she kind of made a name for herself when she wrote this book that was about the history of the prosperity gospel in America. And so, if you don't know what the prosperity gospel is. It is essentially, it's a, it's a kind of gospel that can only happen in America because basically what it says is the more faith that you have, the healthier you'll be and the wealthier you'll be. It's not, it's not a gospel at all. It's not something that the early disciples would have recognized because um, they almost all died as martyrs. So, but she wrote this history of the prosperity gospel and it really got a lot of high praise. And there was, she was 35 years old and all of these things were kind of falling in place for her, right? I mean, she had finished her PhD. She had um, already published a book that, that was getting very good reviews. She had married her high school sweetheart. Um, they had struggled to have a child, but they eventually had a healthy baby boy, and it just seemed like um, nothing could be better. And then she went into the doctor one day. And she was having some stomach pain, and she walked out of the office that day having been diagnosed with a a really rare form of stage 4 colon cancer. And her most recent book that she's written, and I can't remember the title of it, to be honest, and I haven't read it, but it's a memoir of the last two years of dealing with this disease and even thinking about the research that she had done on this idea of faith, meaning you'll be healthier and you'll be wealthier compared to where she finds herself at the current moment. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I read a review of the book not long ago and some of the words of the reviewers stuck, um, just struck me. He said this, There is more to this book than the opportunity to deepen your empathy. It is a window into the thoughts, longings, and observations of an exceptionally articulate observer facing down one of the most unexceptional of human problems. I don't mean terminal cancer, of course, or the prospect of leaving a toddler and a husband alone at such an early age. I mean the problem of death itself, which we have minimized and avoided far too long and far too often. To read this book is to feel something of the offensiveness of death. This woman should not be mortal. How do we make sense of the fact that she is? How do we cope with the fact that we are too? This woman should not be mortal. How do we make sense of the fact that she is? How do we cope with the fact that we are too? And I know what you're thinking as you're sitting there. You're thinking, is this really his opening illustration? That's depressing. I didn't come here for depressing. That's depressing. But the reason I'm opening with that is because that gets at the very heart of everything that Christianity is actually about. This is the question that it presses into. And to consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is to consider the unexceptional yet often unspoken of reality that each of us inevitably faces, which is death. I think if you get that in your head, then you understand a little bit more why John's so ecstatic in this gospel. 
Um, John, if you go back, if you've never read John's gospel before, I encourage you to just sit down one afternoon. You can read it really quickly. It's not that long. And to read through this gospel because John, at the very beginning of this gospel, he doesn't start it the way that the other writers started. The other writers do what you would expect. Um, They introduce the character. They tell about how he was born. Um, They explain a little bit of his early life and some of his development. But John, instead, if you've ever read the gospel, you know that he just erupts at the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh. And he moved into the midst of, of this, of this neighborhood, of this junk, of this mess, of this chaos. And he starts talking about light that overcomes darkness. And then, just a little later, he introduces this character, John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist sees this one coming down the road. And he looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we see Jesus, the light who is broken into the darkness. And what does he do? He walks down by the lake and he calls these men who are nobodies, who are manual laborers, and he tells them to come and follow me. And what do they do? They run back to other people and they say this line that is repeated over and over again, come and see. You've got to come and see him. You've got to meet him. I don't know how else to explain it. You've got to come and see him. And we see Jesus going on and, and talking you know, to a woman at a well in the middle of the day who he should not have been talking to by their culture standards and who had been divorced five times, rejected by five different men. And the man that she was now living with was not her husband. And Jesus is offering her living water and she has no idea what he's talking about. And finally she says, you know, when the Messiah comes then I guess he'll explain all of this. And Jesus says, "He, I am speaking to you and he. He goes to a man who hasn't walked for 38 years and tells him to take his mat and get up. That we watch Jesus over and over again doing these things. And, And this is what John is finally building to. And this is why I want to focus on these last two chapters of his Gospels. Because here we have Mary Magdalene coming to see the place where this man was now laid. This one who perfectly at every moment loved his father in heaven and loved his neighbor as himself. Perfectly loved. And then he was executed. And he was put into a tomb. And Mary Magdalene goes to see where he was laid. And we have Peter and John himself racing towards the tomb. And the thing compelling them, I think, is this question. Was he the one... Was he the one that was going to address our tears? Is he he the one who was going to take away our pain? Could he possibly have been the one? And then Jesus shows up again, and surely enough, the questions he asks are the two questions I want us to think about tonight. Why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? This passage, it opens with Mary. She comes to the tomb on the first day of the week. This is a Sunday, early in the morning while it is still dark. There's all this imagery in John's gospel of light and dark. You remember Nicodemus comes in the dark to Jesus because he's looking for light. And Mary comes in the dark hoping for some sort of light. And what she sees is she sees this stone, this huge stone that covered the tomb where Jesus was laid has been rolled away. 
If I were in a graveyard early in the morning while it was still dark and I saw a tomb that had been opened up, I would do what Mary did too. She turned around and she ran the other way, okay? Because she's a sane person, right? She runs back and she gets Peter and she gets John and they go back together. But Peter and John begin running. They begin sprinting. And John, who's maybe too humble to actually name himself, he was the other disciple, we're pretty sure. John is a little quicker than Peter. And he, he takes off and he gets there first, but he does what a sane person does too. Is he gets and he just kind of looks in. But Peter comes from behind and just sort of runs straight into the tomb. He just barrels straight in and he looks in and he sees these linen cloths lying there and there's no body there. And John comes in after Peter. And John looks and what does he say? He saw and he believed. The reason he wrote this gospel, the reason that I want to talk to you about it tonight is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and and believing that you might have life in his name. Come and see. Come and see is the refrain over and over again. And John now sees and everything begins to fall into place. But what do they do next? They just go back home. They don't know what else to do. But Mary, Mary can't shake it. Mary can't accept it. Mary doesn't understand what's going on. And so she doesn't leave. And instead, what does she do? She stands outside of the tomb and she just begins to weep. She's uncontrollably weeping until finally she decides to look for herself. And so she leans over and she peers into this tomb and she sees two angels. And one of them is sitting at the head and one of them is sitting at the foot where Jesus had lain, which is, if you remember, like the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And the the thing on top was called the mercy seat and it had two angels. I think John is sort of getting us to think about that image. She looks in and she sees these two angels. And they ask her this question. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? And if I can paraphrase for Mary, I mean, I think that what she's she's thinking is, I am heartbroken. I am confused. I am devastated. I am lost. I have no idea what is going on. That's why I'm weeping. And at that moment, she can't answer because she feels the presence of somebody behind her. This is already turning into a horror movie, right? You're looking in a tomb, talking to angels, and then you feel someone walk up behind you. And so she turns around. And the man that she's looking at, she doesn't recognize. And we don't know why. Maybe it's still too dark, or maybe his resurrected body looks somehow different. But he opens his mouth and he asks her this same question. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now why does Jesus, why does he ask that question? Jesus' questions are always really layered. It's not that he didn't have anything else to say. These are the first words out of the mouth of of the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh, walked among us, was executed, buried, and then rose from the dead, breaking the bonds of sin and death. These are the first words out of his mouth. Why are you weeping? Why does he ask it? 
Because he wants Mary, he wants Mary to know, I see you. I see your tears. I see your grief. I see your despair. I see your confusion. I have come to enter straight into it so that I can actually take it away for all eternity. I see you. That's where we find, isn't it interesting? I mean, you can't make this up. That this is where, this is Easter morning. This is the first Easter. And this is where we find Mary. That she is bawling her eyes out. And let's be honest. This is where we often find ourselves too. I mean, this is where you may have found yourself even this week. This may have been where you found yourself last night in a room this size. Somebody was bawling their eyes out. This is, you know, this is Easter morning, like I said. And when you think about Easter morning, what do you normally think about? You know, for us, we think about, I mean, this is the Southeastern Conference for RUF. So we think about like seersucker suits and tulips and pastels. And like in my church, we have like a cross where you bring flowers and you put the flowers in the cross. And you think about scrolling through Instagram later in the day. And there's like all these amazingly perfect families, like like a thousand pictures of families that are all dolled up on Easter and that none of it can cover up the fact that there are behind those pictures and behind those that clothing that there is a multitude of tears that there is a multitude of grief here's what i want you to see if you don't get anything if you don't hear anything else tonight just hear this this is what i want etched into your mind and etched into your heart as we move into this weekend that the first act of the resurrection of the risen Jesus, the first thing that he does is he chooses to move towards a formerly demon-possessed woman in her wild, unimaginable grief. That is who your God is. That is what he is like. That is what he does. The first thing that he chooses to do is to meet this woman who is a, I mean, she is a nobody. She is a nobody in her culture. She is one who's formerly possessed by demons. She's standing there weeping. Jesus says, this is where I want to show up first. That is what God's like. Now, if, you know, if I were Jesus, that's always a great way to start a sentence. And I had just, it had just risen from the dead. Where would I go? You know where I would go? I would run to the temple and I would be like, here I am, suckers. You know, it's like, I'm back. I would go, I would go straight to the ones who were foaming at the mouth and who were saying, crucify him, crucify him crucify him. I would at least gather the ones that I had spent the most time with and said, I'm back from the dead. Let's throw a party. Jesus' first move is towards this woman who had tasted of his love, who had tasted of his healing power, who had tasted of the bitterness of sin and death. You see, where grief is most intense is where the hope of the resurrection And the hope of Jesus shines most brightly. It's where grief is most intense, where the hope 
of the resurrection and the hope of Jesus shines more brightly. But Mary doesn't really have a time to answer this first question of Jesus, and he doesn't need her to answer because he, he knows better than she knows why she is weeping. She is weeping for a million different reasons, and he knows every single one of them. But he follows it up with the second question. Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, it, who, why are you weeping? Who can stop your tears? Who can actually see your pain? Who are you looking for? Why did you come back to this tomb? Is there somebody who can apply a balm to this, this darkness and this grief that is persistent inside of you? Who are you seeking? And I'll ask you that same question. Who are you seeking? Maybe I can ask it this way. Why did you come to this thing? Right? Who, who did you think that you would find here? Because deep down inside of us, the reason that I start kind of in a dark place tonight is because every single one of us wants something. And we're looking for something that will stop our tears. Let's be honest. That will take away our pain. That will make it end. And you know, I joked at the beginning about finding a spouse here. You know, I hope you do, right? I hope you look back 30 years from now and you're like, you remember Fall Conference 2018 at Greystone? We had that amazing speaker. And we locked eyes across the room and we're like, I I don't know, and, and we just, it was amazing. Here's the thing. A spouse, the most wonderful one, cannot take away your tears. They cannot stop your weeping. You look at those Easter pictures, you look at the perfect family, you might look at it and you go, man, one day I would love that. I would love to have that. It's not going to stop your tears. You think about that school that you're applying to right now, the grad school that's going to do it for you, that's going to finally get you to where you want to be. It's not going to stop your tears. You think about all the money in the world is just going to produce more tears. And so just like Jesus did with that woman at the well, he decides to reveal himself to her. And how does he do it? Whom are you seeking? He just says her name. I love this. He just says, Mary. Mary. I am the good shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Mary, I have, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Why is Jesus the one that she's seeking? Why can I make the claim tonight that he is actually the one that you are seeking, even if you don't know that's who you're seeking, because he is the only one with the ability to see the deep darkness of your grief and your sin and your fear and your shame and actually do something about it. Because the wages of sin, it is death. But the good shepherd, he lays down his life for his sheep. And friends, this is where John is taking us. This is who John wants you to come and see. This is John who is an eyewitness to the resurrection, who spent so much time with Jesus, who laid his head upon Jesus' 
breast at the Last Supper, this is the one John is saying that you've actually been seeking. And where is he right now? He is, he's risen. He is risen from the grave. He's seated at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. He has made complete and perfect satisfaction for your sins. And here's the thing. He has seen everything about you. He has seen everything that you're trying to cover up. He has seen all of your ugliness. And yet for the joy that you were the joy that was set before him, so that he endured the cross, despising the shame. For you, he trampled the power of sin and death, and all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to him. And you are united with him. And friends, this risen Jesus sits now, even now, retaining a body. He sits in the flesh, and his body still retains, and we're going to see this over the next couple of days, it still retains the wounds of his death, And those scars tell a story of his love and of his power and those wounded, powerful hands at this very moment. Do you understand at the very moment that we're sitting here that Jesus is at work and he is reshaping and rebuilding the sin-sick world so that heaven and earth might finally be united so that he can make all things new. And one day, the same risen Jesus will look at you and ask, Why are you weeping? Even as he reaches out with his scarred hands and wipes away the tears from your eye. This is not a fairy tale. This is the truest thing that you've heard all week. This is who you're seeking. And if you come and see, like John wants you to, what you'll find is that he raises you with him. He is the first fruits of this new creation And even now, you who are with him, who have been raised with him, you are a whisper of what is to come. That's what you are. You are a sliver of light that is cutting into the darkness. One writer puts it this way. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. How can that be? You know how it could be? Is because the life, the spirit, the power of the resurrection is now alive inside of you. The power that broke the chains of death and broke the power of sin and condemnation over you now lives in you, is now alive in you. You know what that means? It means this, because Jesus is risen. It means your garbage and your sin and your junk does not have the final word over you. Jesus does. And Jesus says, it is finished. There is no condemnation that is left for you. Don't miss the fact that for the people that we're going to look at over these next few days, the people of this narrative, formerly demon-possessed, formerly possessed by pride, formerly possessed by um, aspirations of what they thought their life might look like as they followed Jesus, these people become people of the resurrection. You can go read through Acts and watch them. Mary herself, she becomes, think about this for a minute, who becomes the first person to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? Mary does. 
Mary becomes the first proclaimer of the resurrection. They have come and they saw and it completely changes the direction of their lives. Jesus tonight, he meets us. He meets us in our grief. That's what your God is like. He addresses our tears. He weeps alongside of us. He atones for our sin and he conquers death forever. Let me pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the privilege to to stop, to put down our work, um, to cease from the things that we've become so busy with, and to just to look at Jesus and to see um, that he is the radiance of your glory. He is the exact imprint of your nature. And Father, that he moves towards us um, even in our tears and in our grief. Father, would you meet us there even this weekend? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How how do you do that? Can you all say the words